Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Discerning Divine Judgment. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, February 19th, 2012. I don't know who wrote the footnotes for the New Oxford Annotated Bible, 1991, but I was startled to read their description of Psalm 50 for this week. The editors call Psalm 50 a liturgy of divine judgment. Wow, I thought, a liturgical service focused on God's judgment. When you read Psalm 50, though, you see that the description fits. The Mighty One summons heaven above and earth beneath that he may judge his people. This is not a judge you'd want to face, for the psalmist says that a fire devours before him, and around him a tempest rages. Indeed, God himself is judge. Witnesses are called, testimony is given, and a warning issued. I will rebuke you and accuse you to your face. Consider this, all you who forget God, or I will tear you to pieces with none to rescue. This psalm places us in dangerous territory. It defies easy explanation and evokes deeply ambivalent feelings. Who could be so presumptuous as to portray God as a monster and to invoke divine judgment? History is littered with the horrific consequences of this dark human impulse. And yet, on the other hand, who wants to live in a world where human injustice never meets divine accountability? Do the vulnerable and the oppressed have no hope for redress for how the violent and the powerful have dehumanized them? So, we're rightly reluctant to invoke God's judgment, even if the psalmist does so. Yet at the same time, we viscerally long for such judgment, and so find solace in Psalm 50. I recently read an article by Adam Gopnik in The New Yorker about the Spanish Inquisition. Gopnik's article, called Inquiring Minds, reviews the new book by Colin Murphy, which is called God's Jury. The Inquisition in the Making of the Modern World. The Inquisition combined fanaticism, torture, and bureaucratic brutality that culminated in the infamous auto de fe, public liturgies of divine judgment, if you will, if ever there was one. We know the cruelest of fanatics, writes Gopnik, by their exceptionally clear consciences. They were God's jury doing God's business. It would, be, it would be hard to be too hard on the church's inquisitions. But as Murphy shows, its secular counterparts don't get a free pass. The subtitle of his book suggests its unique contribution. Murphy argues that the inquisition did not spell the end of modernity, but its beginning. The Inquisition is not a bygone relic of medieval history that we've outgrown, but a living legacy with contemporary heirs. The Gestapo, 
the KGB, the Stasi. Even our Guantanamo-making apparatus has a forebear in Torquemada and the men in red hats. The Inquisition is only one of many sobering reasons why we should be cautious to speak of God's judgment. Judgment belongs to God alone. Divine judgment is not merely retributive, but also redemptive. It's God's penultimate word, and not his final word. The early church father's origin in Gregory of Nyssa even hoped for the redemption of Satan. And Jesus, of course, told us not to judge, lest we be judged. Since divine judgment begins with God's people, 1 Peter 4, and since we shall all stand before God's judgment, Romans 14.10, when we think of judgment, we should think about our own selves, not about others. In 1 Corinthians 9.24-27, even the Apostle Paul contemplated the real and harrowing possibility of his own banishment to perdition. God's judgment acknowledges the disparity between what is and what should be. It's God's persistent refusal to let us sink to our worst impulses and to settle for anything less than his best for us. In judgment, God says to us, I will not abandon you to yourself. I will not forget the cries of the oppressed, the weak, the vulnerable and all those who have suffered at the hands of the violent and the powerful. This is why three books I recently read make me think of judgment as a form of consolation. The memoir by Agnes Kamara Umuna, And Still Peace Did Not Come, describes the horrors of life in Liberia under the dictator-psychopath Charles Taylor. Similarly, in his book, The Fear, Peter Godwin returned to his boyhood country and bears witness to the national devastation under Robert Mugabe, the world's oldest head of state. And then finally, in the book, Dancing in the Glory of Monsters, Jason Stearns explains the history of the deadliest war of our generation in the Congo, former Zaire, where over five million people have perished. It's very hard to exaggerate the suffering that our fellow human beings have experienced at the hands of despots like Taylor and Mugabe. Starvation, disease, systematic rape, economic plunder, torture of political opposition, and crimes against humanity. People fret a lot about human injustice, but say precious little about divine judgment of injustice. In Psalm 50 for this week, God judges injustice. I like to hope that God the judge says to these tens of millions of innocent victims in the Congo, in Liberia, and in Zimbabwe, you were not forgotten. Witnesses have testified one day I will right these wrongs, and injustice will face judgment. I pray that the atrocities 
will meet accountability in the Congo, Liberia, Zimbabwe, and the many other places like them. Psalm 50 isn't the only liturgy of divine judgment in Scripture, not by a long shot. The Old Testament reading for this week is a case in point. The political panorama of First and Second Kings includes the reigns of 40 kings and one queen. This period covers the 400 years from the death of David to Israel's exile to Babylon. It's a political history of Israel's government, but one told with an interpretive twist, for it's told from the theological perspective of prophetic judgment. And what is the conclusion? Only two kings received unqualified approval by the narrator, Hezekiah and Josiah. Otherwise, with monotonous regularity, over 30 times the narrator renders the ominous judgment that a king did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Instead of the glorification or celebration of political power, his history of politics is uniformly pessimistic. Once again, we're left with a visceral longing for the judgment of injustice. The conclusion doesn't advise pacifism in the face of evil, but it's still a trenchant reminder of where our ultimate hope resides. For books this week, I review the new biography by Walter Isaacson. It has the simple title, Steve Jobs. New York, Simon & Schuster, 2011, 630 pages. When Steve Jobs died of complications from pancreatic cancer on October 5th, 5th 2011, he had a net worth of $8 billion, and Apple was the most valuable corporation in the world. He was, as Walter Isaacson writes in his introduction, the ultimate icon of inventiveness, imagination, and sustained innovation. Steve Jobs revolutionized any number of industries, product design, the integration of technology and aesthetics, product launch, advertising, personal computers, animated movies at Pixar, music, phones, tablet computers, digital publishing, cameras, and even retail stores. Isaacson's story, biography, tells this story of Jobs' professional success. But he's also unsparing about Jobs' personal flaws. What acquaintances regularly called his reality distortion field. Jobs lied a lot, and he cried a lot. He was a master manipulator, equally adept at flattery and humiliation. His hucksterism rivaled that of P.T. Barnum. He took pride in being cruel, tyrannical, and ruthless. He viewed the world in binary extremes. A person, their work, or even a milkshake was either brilliant or horrible. He would scorn a colleague's ideas in private, then later in public take credit for them. 
A girlfriend thought that the narcissistic personality disorder explained jobs perfectly. Apple CEO John Scully thought he was bipolar. He probably had an eating disorder given his lifelong compulsion for extreme diets, like eating only carrots for two weeks. Which compulsion, by the way, was one reason he delayed surgery for nine months after his cancer diagnosis, against all the pleadings of doctors and family. Jobs studied Zen all his life and pontificated about enlightenment, but virtually everyone he ever met described him as obnoxious. One of his closest colleagues, neighbors, and family friends, Andy Hertzfield, once confided, The one question I truly love Steve to answer is, Why are you sometimes so mean? Jobs explained to Isaacson, Quote, this is who I am, and you can't expect me to be someone I'm not. He never thought the rules applied to him, which is why he would park in a handicapped space. Still, every person is more than their worst flaws. And it's fascinating to wonder why an absolute control freak who micromanaged the tiniest of details would concede all editorial control to Walter Isaacson even the right to see the biography before it was published. Isaacson conducted over 40 interviews with Jobs across two years, and more than a hundred more with friends, relatives, competitors, adversaries, and colleagues. My own pop psychological interpretation is that the biography is a genuine attempt by Jobs to tell the truth about himself to the public, of course, but especially to his own self. It's a final act of catharsis or confession, late in time, but authentic in expression. Jobs knew his personal demons, even if he was unapologetic about them, but only he alone could make sure that this unflattering portrait became public. Ann Bowers, a mother figure from his teenage years, once describes Jobs as, quote, so bright and so needy. Late in life, Jobs himself confided to her, quote, I did learn some things along the way. I did learn some things. I really did. Walter Isaacson, the title of the book, Steve Jobs. For Film This Week, I review Into the Universe with Stephen Hawking, 2010. The title of this Discovery Channel television miniseries is slightly misleading, in that the Cambridge physicist Stephen Hawking doesn't do much more than appear in short cameos to introduce the successive sections of the show. This television miniseries is composed of three episodes. Number one, Aliens, which is 43 minutes. Number two, Time Travel, which is also about 43 minutes. And then finally, The Story of Everything, which is about an hour and 43 minutes. Benedict Cumberbatch actually narrates all three episodes, which consist almost entirely of 
of computer animated graphics. The, the provocative episode titles allow the script to explore basic concepts of cosmology, like space, time, wormholes, black holes, gravity, matter, antimatter, the Big Bang, and so on. Because so much of the cosmos remains a mystery to our best scientists, there's an unending stream of mites and maybes. The series concludes with what Hawking calls the ultimate mystery of why the universe ever existed at all. The best they can do is compare it to an accident, like winning the cosmic lottery. I watched these three episodes of the miniseries on Netflix streaming. Into the Universe with Stephen Hawking, 2010. And for poetry this week, we've posted a poem by George Herbert, 1593 to 1633. It's titled Love Three. Love bade me welcome. Yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind? Ungrateful? Ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, Who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, that I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. George Herbert, Love 3. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, February the 19th, 2012.